Hey everybody, if you need a little bit of love in your life, well, I certainly do. And this morning's guest is going to deliver just that. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew and I am a real estate broker in the Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo area. And we've created the City DNA podcast so that we can get to know the people in our community. Every week we interview people that we find interesting or that we think will have information that we want to know a little bit more. If you have a question as you drive around the city and you wonder about this or that, let me know about that. I'll try and find out the answer for you. With no further ado, I want to introduce you to Brandon Love, who is going to fix all your love problems. Well, it has to do with the mortgage, that is. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So my name is Brandon Love. I'm based out of Milton. I am a mortgage agent. And I lend on residential mortgages all over Southern Ontario and licensed for Ontario, but my specialty is really in Southern Ontario there. Uh, I focus a lot on helping people achieve their goal of first home ownership and then helping them level up and become investors. So a couple tips and tricks for you if you want to build a portfolio of investments that way. Sounds good, Brandon. Um, did you? So when you started the mortgage industry, did you start off fresh with that or did you do something first before you did mortgages? Yeah. So I had a kind of a wild journey. I always say like no one is in university thinking I'm going to be a mortgage agent when I grow up. Uh, so I had a few startups in university from there. I got into the consulting space with the airline industry. And then I was like, this is crazy. I don't like commuting to the airport every day. Uh, so I took a little sabbatical. I did a bit of farming, interestingly enough. And then while farming, I realized this is a very difficult way to earn a living and support a family. Uh, and my bank of cash was slowly dwindling working on it. So a buddy of mine said, you know what? You have the financial knowledge. You, you love all this stuff. Like, why don't you do the mortgage license? I'm like, I don't think that's a fit for me, but sure, why not? So I tried it out. And it turns out it was like perfectly aligned. Sometimes I think people have better insight into you than you have into yourself. So yeah, it was kind of a match made in heaven there. That's kind of interesting because the more I talk to people, the more I realize that what we think we're good at or that we will like um, is not always the case. And sometimes when you try something out, you, you just, I don't know, you find a different angle on it or something. And um, I think for you, I, I think what attracts our clients to you in terms of referrals is um, you're just the way that you're personable with people. We can kind of relate to you, I think. What do you think about that? What do you think people are attracted to you when it comes to mortgages? Yeah, for sure. That's a, a lot of the feedback that we get to our team is that the way we share information, we always do a lot of video content, a lot of budgets and walkthroughs and the way we talk about things, it's not confusing or that you feel like you're sitting in a bank office, high pressure of someone trying to force something on you that you don't really know what you're signing. Uh, I think that comes from that perspective of being on the other side of the table and and being in those situations and feeling like, I don't really grasp what you're saying, but I also don't have a comfort level with you as uh, on the other kind of power dynamic that I feel like I can ask those questions. So we've always tried to make it more that, you know what, we're guiding you. Through the process, we're here for you to leverage our relationships and to navigate the waters for you. But at the end of the day, this is a partnership with both our realtor partners, our lawyers, and our clients. And it involves everyone knowing the direction we're heading and being on the same page for us to get there effectively and for everyone to be happy. Mm, that's cool. 
when a person comes to meet you, what would it look like for them? Yeah. You know, so I, from yeah. So yeah, like just to give you some perspective, if I'm a first time home buyer, like I'm I'm just trying to think back. I was I didn't actually know what I was doing. <laughs> back then was a long time ago, and we just had banks, we didn't even have mortgage brokers. Uh, but I remember two things. One, I was young, so I knew everything, of course. You know, yeah, and of course. Google didn't <laughs> exist back then. So just imagine if I grew up today, man, I would know everything. Uh, but I'm, at the same time, I was really nervous about what to do because I have such a big purchase and I actually didn't know everything. So if I was coming into your office, what would it look like? Or maybe you don't even have an office. So tell me what that experience looks like for for me. Yeah, for sure. So if you're coming in, we don't have an office. We do everything uh, virtually. This is something we implemented during the pandemic and it, we realized it was so much easier for both our teams and for our clients for a convenience factor. So let's say first introduction, Andrew introduces you to me. Um, you're going to get an email with a direct link to my calendar that sets you up for a 10 to 15 minute phone call where we're just going to go through kind of how we work, how the mortgage process goes, answer any early questions you have, get a few preliminary details about you. If you say, you know, this sounds good. I want to take the next step. I'm going to send you an online application. You can complete it from your phone or your computer. Uh, quick questions, where you live, what do you do for work, that kind of stuff. From there, when you submit, you'll immediately receive an automated request for documents. Take a picture of your license. You take a picture of your pay stub, T4, a couple odds and ends that we'll request from you. And then we send you back a walkthrough video of that application showing you some strategies of how we can either increase the number if you want a property that's a little bit higher than you're currently qualified for, or how we can optimize different parts of your application. And then we also send you a link to a Google document that has your budget in it and a walkthrough video explaining the budget. So you're going to know down to the penny what everything's going to cost and any extra charges. I feel like that there's a, a big misconception and miscommunication with people who don't realize that certain times, yes, you, you're getting the land transfer tax credit as a first time home buyer. That's up to a certain point. Um, you're getting, you're going to have to pay for legal fees. You're going to have to pay for certain things that are charges along the way, even though working with Andrew as your buying agent and working with me as your mortgage agent don't cost you anything. There's other costs along the way. So we have complete transparency as to what other parties are charging. So, you know, come closing time, this is the amount you need and you're set up for success that way. Absolutely. I think transparency and trust are like the same word. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you talk about that. You know, I, I know on the real estate side is we don't want to talk about cost or commissions or anything like that because it's scary and we're, we're afraid people will walk away from that. Right. <laughs> but when you talk about all those things and it comes to closing and they know everything, uh, that is much better than them getting a large bill for something they didn't expect and rushing through documents and, you know, trying to get X, Y, Z signed that they didn't think they had to get signed. Uh, honesty is and transparency are huge in our industry. 100%. That's actually the first thing we talk about on our discovery call is how I get paid. Uh, because I, I, for a while, I, I left it to the end of the conversation and people were sitting there. I'm like, I think this whole time you're thinking about how much is this going to cost me? So we get it out of the way at the beginning. It's it's not a cost. We're paid by the lender for right. organizing the file and, and placing it with them for 
for the client themselves, they just get to leverage our experience and knowledge and relationships that way. Yeah, that, that's great. And a lot of people forget about mortgage brokers, even though I think that, in my opinion anyways, there's a lot more mortgage brokers out there than the bank. Uh, is that true or is it just my perspective? Yeah, so there's been a bit of a shift in Canadian culture. Originally, going back, like if you, if you tell your grandparents you're going to a mortgage broker, they're going to be like, do you have bad credit or is there something wrong that you've done? Uh, why aren't you going to your bank? There was kind of two sides of brokering. So there was the brokering through the bank. And then there was, if you couldn't get qualified through the bank, you went to a broker. Now it's a bit different. A lot of those big banks are actually in the broker channel. So you might come and meet with me and I might decide to place your mortgage with Scotia or TD Bank. Um, what we're doing that's a little bit different is versus you going to TD Bank and then going to RBC Bank and having them compete we're building one application with you and then we're shopping them to all those different lenders and just picking the one that number one rates most competitive as well as the terms. The terms are kind of more important than rate uh, because if I save you $12 today, but three years later, it costs you $4,000 to get out of the mortgage, you're, you're not ahead. Um, so yeah, we're just going to those different banks on your behalf. Essentially, we're the middleman for you. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Um, dude, these podcasts are so interesting for me because first of all, I think I have ADHD. I think a lot of people in my generation have it and they didn't uh, get diagnosed, but my mind goes a million miles an hour. So bear with me with that. Um, but as you speak, I have a thousand questions, but I also recognize that there are certain things that we want to uh, talk about in these podcasts. So I want to go back to something at, at, that kind of struck my mind as you were speaking um, particularly uh, first-time homebuyers, you, you've mentioned a few times so far. There is a a program. Now we always knew it as the first-time homebuyers program, but now it's there's something new called the first home buyers something. I always mess it up. Can't remember that stupid it's an awful government name. Yeah, the yes. worst government name out there. So yeah, it's a new program. It's called the first home savings account. Um, essentially, it's a hybrid between an RR. RRSP and a TFSA. Um, so like an RRSP in that what you contribute to it reduces from your income for what you pay in taxes. And like a TFSA in that there's a capped annual amount and you can withdraw the funds at any time without a penalty. Um, so sorry to interrupt there, Brandon. Let's go back a little bit though, because there are people that are, will be watching this that don't know what an RRSP is or yeah. a TSFA. So can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah. So your RSP is your retirement savings plan. So when you contribute to that each year, um, if you if you do, a lot of people don't, it reduces the total amount of income tax you're going to pay. So you it lowers, let's say you make $50,000 a year, you contribute $5,000 to your RSP, you're now taxed on $45,000. Uh, so it's a tax reduction strategy, you can contribute to it and bank it for future years. So that if you're early in your career, you can defer it to when you're earning more money. Um, unlike so that as once you start earning money, your RRSP space is growing. Uh, TFSA, once you turn 18, you have an annual amount that you can contribute to. That's a tax-free savings account. So this year, I believe it was uh, $7,000 was the annual contribution amount. So that continues to grow as well. Any gains you make in there 
are totally tax-free. So if you contribute, you know, $40,000 over a couple of years and you grow that to 1 million over 35 years in your retirement, you can pull all that money from there without paying a penny to the government. So it's a great tool that way. Um, how the first home savings account works is that it reduces the amount of taxes paid like the retirement savings account and the gains in there also can grow that tax-free way like the TFSA. How it's a little bit different is you need to open the account for those gains to actually start. So if you haven't opened an account and your goal is to buy in the next five years, open it today. Super easy to do. Um, you can contribute 8,000 per year as maximum up to a maximum amount of $40,000. So it's not a huge amount, but it does get some tax reduction there and some growth as well. And it can be used in co combination with your RRSP where you can withdraw 35,000 for your down payment. So there's a lot of tools and tricks there. So you can do, essentially you can do all three at the same time. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. So if you were, if you're starting to save right now and just kind of trying to prioritize and triage, I would say if your goal is to, to buy a home in the next five years, start with the first home savings account. Once that's maxed out, I would say go TFSA. And then from there, go to your RRSP. The reason being for that is if, if it's not for a home, pulling money from your RRSP is taxed. So, um, the TFSA gives you a little bit of more flexibility that way. Yeah. And also the RSP one, you have to pay it back. So you have yes. 15 years to, to pay that back. That's I mean, correct. A lot of yeah. people forget about that part, um, but yeah. you do get a big tax savings on that year, especially if you take a lump sum. Sometimes people take a loan to get that and they put it in, they get, they get money back in their taxes. Uh, those sure. strategies are things that um, we'll probably talk about in another podcast uh, I'll probably have a, uh, a financial advisor to talk about that, just to give us some more clarity on that. And then the other big problem that people have is, okay, where do I find that money to put in there? So, you know, Brandon comes along, uh, usually the people have the money already um, or they don't and you direct them somewhere. Um, yeah. I'm going to talk to that person that can help you save the money. So stay tuned. If you're listening to this podcast, if you've watched it so far uh, up to this point, please watch, please watch. People always you know, watch for like 30 seconds and then they go find something else. So people are like squirrels, right? Yeah. But, we're, um, we're I know, like I, know I am, <laughs> but you're, you're a good looking guy. So people will stick on this for a little bit longer. Uh, but yeah. So what do you do, it, you know, from your business when someone comes along and they say, Hey, I want to buy a house, but they just don't have X, Y, or Z right yet. Do you have, do you have a program or do you send them somewhere else? Yeah, so we have a few options depending on what their hurdle might be. So some people come in and it's like credit is a, an issue. I'll walk them through a credit coaching plan. And we've had people go from like low 600s up to low 800s in a year's time just by implementing some strategies that way. Uh, and we do touch on quite a bit of those on our podcast, The Invested Entrepreneur as well, if you're looking for some tips and you're in that scenario. Um, if it's a, a down payment issue, for example, um, there's programs like there's one with the municipality of Guelph that will help contribute to your, your down payment up to 10%. It's a forgivable loan over a 20 year period. There's down payment borrowing. So if you have room in your ratios, you can borrow on something like a line of credit and you use that for your down payment. 
If you have family, you can get gifted funds from them and put that towards your down payment. So there's several strategies depending on your unique scenario that can be applied to get you to that initial down payment point. And then from there, it's just a matter of qualifying based on the debt servicing ratios. Awesome. When we put this on YouTube, eventually I'll get you to put the, give me the links and I'll put them below so people can watch your podcast, your educational videos, or if you have you know an article on your website, we'll connect to that as well. Awesome. Appreciate it. Awesome. I want to get into some meat. There's three things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, there are three things that in, in 2024 people probably need to know the most. Uh, the first is the first time homebuyers account. I hate saying yeah. that word because it's not really account. You can, you can put it anywhere, which we kind of talked about already. But the second yep. piece is uh, house hacking. This is a term yeah. that I view differently. I don't call it house hacking, but the younger generation looks at that. It looks at it that way. In fact, uh, our one of our agents, Gabriel Ho, he refers to house hacking all the time. And yeah. uh, explain to us what house hacking is. Yeah, so house hacking is my favorite strategy if you're a first time home buyer or um, you know you just first time want to get investing. So what it is is you purchase a home with either a secondary unit or the opportunity to build in a secondary unit. And so we'll just, for the ease of simplicity here, we're going to pretend there's two units here. So you purchase a, a duplex property or a house with a granny suite. You're going to live in one unit and you're going to rent out the other unit. Renting out the other unit counts towards your mortgage. So you get 100% of that added to your, your income. So it helps you qualify for a, a higher value property. Uh, additionally, it lowers the costs of your carrying costs because you have that rental income coming back to you. So that's why it's a real beauty because you know, you're know you now living in a property that you own and quite often you're paying, you yourself are paying less than market rents to own two units. Down the line, when you, let's say you grow your family or you just decide you want more personal space, you can then buy your next property with as little as 5% down and you now have two income generating units that get added to your income once again, and you can just rinse and repeat and grow a whole portfolio of investment properties. Why I love it for first time home buyers is it's very easy to go to a lender and say, okay, this is why we're doing it uh, this way, because it makes sense that you'd want some supporting income to lower your costs and you can live in one unit because you've only ever been renting. Down the line, if you're a family of five, for instance, it's less believable or likely that you're going to want to move back to that one unit and, and lower your quality of living. Uh, so it's good to do it as your first move and then graduate from there versus trying to reverse those steps. I was thinking exactly the same thing that you said, because a lot of people were, are like, you know what, um, I need the money, but I would rather wait to buy a house where there's nobody in it, just me and my my wife or spouse or whatever it is. But there are a lot of people that are will be coming from rent. You know, they're renting a basement apartment. So for them to move to the upper unit of a house, well, that's an upgrade. And exactly. your mortgage is, you know, a lot of times half paid by the rent in the basement. Which, by the way, if you are watching this from somewhere else, Guelph has one of the highest uh, rental rates in the country. And that's not necessarily a good thing. It's a good thing if you're a landlord, but it's a bad thing if you're looking to rent a place. 
uh, a basement apartment is going to run you around 2000 to 2100 a month and an upper floor anywhere from 25 to 3000 uh, i think our i think i saw a statistic that we're the third highest rental um city in the country wow. below toronto and vancouver at somewhere around 2200 per month on average I have to check that statistic i'll put it in the comments too if i can find it um, but it's just alarming and this is everywhere all over the country so if you can house hack and get a mortgage that's the best case scenario and then the other thing too is i wanted to mention this sort of a plug for ourselves i don't like to do this on these podcasts but it's such a good fit and i think it's helpful for the, the viewers is we created a company called radical housing and we just create basement apartments in, in in its basic form. But the difference is that we manage the entire thing from the beginning to end. We'll help find the tenants. We'll help manage the tenants. And in some cases, if you can't afford to do the renovation yourself, we'll pay for it and we'll share in the rent. So that's something that we're doing to create more housing out there, which we hope will make it more affordable down, down the line. Um, but let me ask you this question. So if a person buys a house that doesn't have a basement apartment yet, mm -hmm. is there something that they can do? So they can do the work. So I, I did not know you had that radical housing. That's that's awesome. So they could come to you, for instance, and and have that that done to the property. Um, that would help them qualifying for future properties down the line. Out the gates, you can't use that rental income unless the rental unit exists. It doesn't need to be like a dream rental property. It just has to have a um, functioning bathroom, functioning kitchen, means of egress, like the, the basics that it makes makes it habitable to a person. It needs to have um, separate entrance, that kind of stuff. As soon as you have that, you can use the rental income to qualify. Does it have to be legal and registered with the city for the banks to give you money for that? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, there's... Certain lenders would require that as part of their lending guidelines, but a lot of lenders understand that there's units that aren't um, going to meet the, the city's criteria just because of the city's criteria changing or people doing projects on their own. There's there's some wiggle room there. Um, it just, in that scenario, quite often you're going to have to either provide an appraisal showing market rents, or you're going to have to show your lease with three months of deposits at that point. So as long as you can get those kinds of things, then it's, it's easy to add on. Okay. Do lenders look at it if you rent out rooms or is that something completely different? Yeah. Lenders don't consider rooms. Some on the alternative side and B lending will consider it up to a point it has to be very well documented. Um, so like paid on the first of the month, you have an agreement in place you have all those pieces that you can provide to support it. And quite often you need to be claiming this on your taxes. What happens with a lot of single room rentals is the roommate gives you 400 bucks a month cash, you know, and you just spend it on groceries or whatever. And it's less documented than a formal secondary unit is. Okay. It's so funny because I hear people doing all kinds of strange things out there. And um, I just kind of plug my ears and like, I, you didn't tell me that kind of thing, right? But it's yeah. good to know that there's an alternative for first-time homebuyers or just anybody really to have that extra income. And that reminds me of another question. And you may or may not have the answer. It's definitely a surprise to you. 
Well, in fact, all my questions are a surprise to you. No, it's not like I send you a list of things to that I'm going to ask. Uh, again, that's the way my brain works. But what about ADUs? So accessory dwelling units. Um, every city, most of them call the ADUs. Guelph calls it a um, ADRU or something. It's, anyways, they have a slightly different. There's a different letter in there. It's, it's a residential. Yep. I just forget which location in that is. Can you use that uh, for the same program? Yes, I'm off the top of my head. I I haven't researched this policy in a while, um, but I'm going to go with yes, that you can add it. I just know you can't secondary finance that, that development of that ADU with every lender, but policy-wise, income generation on the property is income generation on the property. Um, yeah, so those ADUs are, are pretty interesting because a lot of municipalities and, and the province of Ontario has actually added a lot of opportunity to add those to properties. So I think you're going to see a lot more of those and you'll see a lot more programs come out in response to this. Right now, it's kind of early days of people starting to to put in those laneway homes and things of that nature. Yeah, I've heard a lot of things as well that different levels of government are trying to implement different things. And I heard that, and don't quote me on this, please. Um, because it's not fact yet, but I've heard it, that Guelph is trying to get four uh, units per residential lot. Um, <clears throat> I think that's good, and it's also bad. It really needs to be managed so that mm -hmm. we don't have, you know, you know, a whole neighborhood of four crappy buildings in one lot. And I think, you know, I have to give Guelph, the city of Guelph praise with that, because I think that they do a really good job of managing what the bylaws should be what things should look like. And I know a lot of people give the city uh, heck for being hard and slow and this and that. <clears throat> and from my experience, I don't think they're really all that slow. They just want things done right. So if you're doing it right, you're going to have a better response from the city than if you do it wrong. Uh, and, you know, through radical housing now we've, you know, we've done, I think we're on our sixth one now. And yeah, you know, I've experienced what people have suggested you know, with the city that, you know, someone says X and someone says Y, but honestly, these are human beings and they, they have their own opinions. And when it comes down to it, they all want what's right for the particular property. And if you're following what the permits and bylaws require, then you'll figure it out, but be willing to make changes. Um, but if you do something major and, you know, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but if you go and put an external entrance in your house and spend 30,000 doing that, and the city says, well, it's two feet too close to the neighbors. Well, that's your fault. Don't yes. complain about that, right? You know, yeah. follow the bylaws. Exactly. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I think I, I think it's related to what the city could look like. I, I think that, again, if the city keeps up with their bylaws and has a forward-facing vision, I think it's a great thing. And I think that, you know... Um, we got to continue to think about different ways of building affordable homes and not have this mentality that it has to stay the way it is. Um, one thing, Brandon, I'm going to complain about, though, is, and I get why they do this, is builders build homes that are giant. Yes. You know, and I get it. because You got to build the biggest home possible on a lot to make the most amount of money. But man, what? why can't we build like a regular bungalow like, like they used to? You know, yeah. I grew up and maybe you grew up in too. Like, what's wrong with that? You know, maybe I'm, maybe, I don't know. Can we do that? 
I think there's I think there's going to be a shift back to it as like costs rise in different areas. People are going to be like, I don't want to heat a three thirty five hundred square foot home. I would rather <laughs> live in something more manageable. And you see, like I, I don't know, for a couple of years there was like everyone was talking about these tiny homes, tiny homes, everything. But then I don't know. My parents live in Eldershot in Burlington, and it was all like nice bungalows. And I went for a walk there over the Christmas holidays, and I was like, "Wow, there's like a mega home here, a mega home here." And sure, I get it from a certain perspective, but also it's like, yeah, you could build, try to build within the fabric of a community. I, I think a lot about like um, in Guelph, what, what's it called, the ward there, like the the all the wartime homes, and and they're like it's just got such a cool vibe to it versus like you tear those down, you build a, a mega modern thing. It's like, okay, cool. You built your dream house, uh, but it, it stands out. It doesn't fit into the fabric of the community. And I think there should be a focus more on like matching the aesthetic or the the vibe of it. And you travel through Europe and certain parts and there's regulations on what you can build and how it can be built, which yes, it's restrictive in a way, but do whatever you want on the inside, make the rest fit into the the community. Yeah, I love that. You know, I love Europe, the way that it looks. My wife is from Europe and she shows me pictures of um, her um, major city or her hometown is Pardubica. Yep. Uh, you know, and she shows me pictures of the community and countryside and it's so amazing. Uh, and then I also, I used to live on the West, uh, East Coast sorry, and the West Coast, but the East Coast is what I'm thinking of where there's a lot of colorful buildings and things like that. And um, one of my colleagues, Big John, uh, you probably know him, uh, he built a house in Guelph and painted it yellow. And some people complained about that in the neighborhood, uh, but I love it. I think that every community should have some character. And, and one of our clients painted their house uh, down in the downtown area, this very vibrant sort of um, a bluey, with a little bit of purple in it. It was actually a gorgeous color. Uh, maybe it didn't have purple. Maybe that's just my mind thinking that. But it was just this gorgeous, rich color. And uh, I love that. I think we should do more stuff like that. But going back to builders again, it may be an opportunity for builders to maybe not have the big 50-foot lots anymore with your bungalow, you know, and 150 feet deep like we're used to, but maybe shrink it down a little bit. But make sure that it has a basement apartment or... Mm -hmm. And you know what? It would be really lovely to have an incentive from the city for people that are going to live in that property and build a basement apartment. You know, it would be great if they can fund. And, you know, company companies like ours don't have to come up with private money to do this. Um, you know, like you said, the city is giving away um, a down payment or something like that. Mm -hmm. I haven't actually heard of that. I'm embarrassed to, know, to say that I haven't heard of that. I'd love to know more about that, but something like that would be perfect for this type of scenario where you are getting the money if you do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, the problem that I see with some of these programs is they say, okay, you can do this, but you need to do affordable rent and you can only charge $600 a month. Yeah. Come on. Like to it build these work. things, it's going to cost way more than that. So just, there's no, in my opinion, and I, I admit that I don't know as much about this as I should. The incentives don't match the cost to, to do it. So if we can say, you know what, we'll give you the money. You rent it out at market rent. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. what's happening is that will be another property that will um, <clears throat> contribute to the housing stock. 
for sure. Winning, right. We're not, maybe not winning for an individual that can only pay $600 a month, but we are winning as a society. Definitely. And I think, so I'll, I'll send you some details on that program to pass along to your clients, but I, I believe off the top of my head, it was over $600,000 properties and they would contribute 10% based on your income threshold. It was, so that's $60,000 towards the down payment. Uh, forgivable loan, if you hold the home for 20 years, you don't have to pay anything back. If you if you move it within that 20 years, you have to pay them back plus appreciation. Sure, okay, that's, that's, that's reasonable to me. But I like your idea there of using that to, to build secondary units because you know, if I give you $60,000, you go to someone's home, you can you can get started a decent part of the project of, of putting that basement unit in and creating more there. Yes, people are going to have to come up with a little bit more cash to make it totally feasible, but it at least gets a chunk of the race started for you. Um, on the development side, I did see a builder, I, I want to say it was out near Pickering, who had put the option of adding a basement unit into into the the new development and they were marketing it for families that had an in-law living with them uh, like a granny suite kind of thing this is how they were marketing it but i actually uh sent it to one of my clients because i'm like it's a income add back for you we'll just do the market rent appraisal on it and then you could qualify for that property so i think more of them should do it as uh as things go on and i'm sure they could probably get some government incentives and funding going around that idea but ultimately that needs to come to entrepreneurship not to government programs i don't think uh, the government is going to solve any of these housing issues yeah exactly yeah, that's one thing in the past i think that the we relied on the government too much to solve the problem and i think that you know it does need to come from industry and i, I do think that it'd be nice to have some help in certain areas you know the government has reduced the uh, remove the HST for purpose-built uh, rental properties, things like that. That's good. And I always wonder, okay, now is that just going to go to the profit of developer or where is that actually going to go? Is it actually going to make it cheaper? And, you know, it's sad that I have these reservations, but they are legitimate reservations that a lot of people have. And that's where I think the government does need to come in and say, okay, you need to, you, you'll get this HST rebate but you need to do X, Y, or Z and be accountable for money. Like we get it. You need to make profit, but if you're going to make, you know, 20% profit plus another 20% profit, because we're giving you this, whatever, you know, yeah. that's not, that's not good. That doesn't make sense. Um, I want to transition here to a part that does relate to this. What about interest rates? Where do you think the market's going? Is it going to be more affordable for buyers and what would it what would it look like if somebody's coming into your office today? Would you say wait or buy now? Okay, so a lot a of questions there. I know <laughs> a couple of things to unpack. So first things first, no crystal ball. The rate market can always change, but we use a lot of indicators like the bond market, global climate, what's going on around the world, as well as just sentiment shared by the federal government. Um, so. First things first, out the gates, fixed rates are already coming down. We've seen reductions by over 0.6 in the past couple of weeks. Almost every week, we get a rate reduction on the fixed side. So those have already come down considerably. 
the variable rate is dictated by the Bank of Canada. So they meet throughout the year and they they make decisions based on inflation, unemployment, all those drivers that way. They are the ones who drove the rates up crazy high over the past 24 months. Um, but in doing so, they brought inflation down from over 8% down to just over 3%. So that's an indicator that we're going to start seeing some rate reductions over the next 12 months. Um, current sentiment is that's going to be around one to one and a half percent reduced that way. Um, so rates are coming down. That makes it more affordable for buyers, one for monthly carrying costs, also for what you can qualify for. So if you were pre-approved in 2023 and you were discouraged by the amount that you were pre-approved for, you're going to want to revisit that this year because you're going to qualify for more that way. That being said, more people are going to qualify for more, so more buyers are going to enter the market. So I would say don't wait if you're if you're shopping, there is an opportunity before those gates are going to open and people are going to to feel that the momentum swinging in the other direction. A lot of people are sitting on the sidelines right now and the people who are willing to to be the first to jump in are going to get ahead in the race. Uh, so I hear people that all the time that they want to wait, they want to time the market. Mm -hmm. First of all, I don't think you can ever time the market. If you, if you have timed the market in the past, I think it's because it's an accident. Yeah. But people talk about foreclosures and unaffordability. And I see this all the time as I, you know, look at, you know, Facebook and YouTube and, you know, people, you know, walking away from deals and things like that. Is that going to happen more or, and will it be enough to cause the market to crash? Like people, some people think. So no, um, Canada has a very, very low foreclosure rate. So quite often some of that doom and gloom storyline you get is uh, premised a lot on what happens in the States. Uh, Canadians, typically speaking, pay their mortgage. Um, when you get in scenarios that you can't pay, there's options like refinancing into private loans and things of that nature before it gets that bad. Obviously, it does happen to some people, but it happens to very few people. Additionally, that kind of like renewal cliff that people were talking about, that was back when people who had, let's say, a rate of 2.85 were going to renew in high sixes if inflation kept going. There was a lot of fear of that. Um, now it's looking like they're going to renew high fours, low fives. That's not a huge enough jump to push them over the limit. It might mean, okay, you know what, Andrew, you're not going to the keg this this month. Um, instead, you're going to go cook a steak at home. But it's not going to be like, Andrew, you and your family are, are out on the street. It's not enough to push the marker that way. Uh, and additionally, those people who are with the variable loans are going to, if they're in a adjustable rate ones, as those rates come down, they're going to start to feel the relief and they've already been making those payments. So they're already in the habit of paying that high rate. Now they're going to feel some relief that way. So I, I don't think we're going to have this massive fall off where you've, you've seen the reduction is in a bit of the property values that way, but I don't think they're going to plunge any further than they have. Yeah, I always thought that the same thing because I always look at supply and demand. Yeah. There are a lot of people that are waiting to get into the market. And sure. it, like you said, as soon as the interest rates break a little bit, 
there's going to be, in my opinion, a flood. Maybe not a flood like a tsunami or anything like that, but I just go back to the spring of last year. I did not expect the market to fly like it did. I yep. did expect it to go up a little bit, but man, by the end of June, holy smokes, we were back into multiple offers and you know that kind of thing. And then it then rate hikes um, happened and the market kind of flattened again. Um, but it just shows you that there's a big demand for for housing. So some of those people have been just waiting and saving, you know, to get into their their home. Mom and dad are, you know, instead of waiting till they die to give money, they are doing a um, what's that called? A life. Um, what's that called? There's a term living for alone, living, living alone. loan or living yeah. will, living yeah. will or something like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, so people are buying. So th these people right now, I think there's actually a window between now and I'll say by the end of March yep. uh, where houses are at a lower price you can get all of them i would say with a condition of inspection a condition of your financing maybe even a sale of property in there with no problem and you're going to get this house for the average house is somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 in Guelph again don't quote me you should have all these statistics ready to go cuz i you know but i always you know it's about it's about it's about um, but it's about 750000 for the average house in Guelph. A year and a half ago, uh, it was about 900000 So imagine buying that now, and then interest rates drop. Wow, man, you're going to be in a lot better position buying a $700,000 house, and then in five years, you're paying you know 3% interest or whatever it might be. So I think there's opportunity. I think, again, the spring, it'll go up. You'll back to competition and that's really hard in this climate because it still is hard to get financing mm -hmm. i should say i should say hard but it's more difficult than it was um so going unconditional on an on an offer i wouldn't recommend it and i know that you probably wouldn't recommend it either yeah so going back though and, and you remember this during the the pandemic when that housing was wild there was no way to win an offer without going unconditional. So everyone was unconditional. And I think a lot of buyers who sit on the sidelines miss that. Yes, they have the luxury of lower prices right now, but they also have the luxury of financing conditions and inspections and things of this nature, like thinking about a house for more than a day before you have to, to fire your offer in and going way over asking. And sure, the rate was 2%. And, and now you might get a rate of 4.9%. But if you put side by side and I show you 900,000 versus 750,000, you're like, oh, it's the same carrying costs monthly. I'm like, yeah, it's the same carrying costs, but you have $150,000 less in debt owing. So you can pay that loan down so much faster than the person in this scenario who might pay the same monthly, but they have $150,000 more in overall debt than you do. Absolutely. And you know, I, I love, this market. People ask me, how is the real estate market? How are you doing? It must be really slow for you. I'm like, no, man, this is this is my best year ever. And the reason why is a lot of agents like myself have been in the business for a long time. I've been in the business for 18 years. So I started when I was 10. <laughs> that's my, my joke. One day that joke won't work anymore. That's your that's your dad's joke. <laughs> your dad joke. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> it won't work anymore at some point. Um, but technology can refresh my face, make me look younger. There you go. Uh, but with that that experience, I've been through the ups and downs. I know how to do clauses, believe it or not. And 
we ran across this a lot in the pandemic where newer agents, and I'm not knocking newer agents, um, but it just, it's a reality that they didn't know, um, I shouldn't say that, they didn't use conditions because they you couldn't get a house with a condition in it. So fast forward to when things are slower and, you know, uh, you, you, first of all, their business isn't coming the same way. They don't know how to get the business, but they don't have the advice because they don't have the um, history. But I ran into one or two agents that didn't know how to put clauses in an offer. And so as a listing agent in those particular cases, I had to show them how to do it. And I'm happy to do it because I think it's better for the industry as we teach each other, whether you're from Remax or Cobalt Banker or, you know, an independent one like my company, I think we should all work together. And by the way, Guelph is really good for that. Mm-hmm. Guelph, I think, you know, having worked in all these markets now, because we, we can, um, you know, back in the day, I used to refer to Cambridge, even though it was 10 minutes away. Nowadays, you know, I'll drive an hour because I can service those clients because I have the technology to do it. Um, and I have the experience to do it now. Uh, I forget where I was going. I lost my train of thought. But you're, you're saying Guelph is more of a collaborative environment. Yeah. Yeah. We have a really good group of people. Yeah. And just comparatively to, you know, I don't want to knock the GTA as a whole, but there are some bad apples there that kind of make everyone look bad. And uh, it's just not fun. But Guelph is fun to do real estate. And, you know, this is where real estate agents that have experience can shine because we can coach you through the clauses. Well, what does this mean? What are different strategies and things like that? I am totally relaxed. This is the real estate that I love. I hated being, um, what do you call it? Like uh, writing prescriptions or just whatever. It's like, that's not fun. I don't want to just show you a house, do an offer and we're done. That's like, to me, that's dumb. I want to give you advice. I want to show you houses. I want to learn about you. I want to just enjoy the process and, you know, see you in that house, you know, five, 10, 20 years later and, you know, watch your family grow. You know, that yeah. that's what I love about real estate. And I'm sure you do too, from the mortgage world, just to see people go from, you know, their first home to a multimillionaire with lots of investment properties, right? Yeah, I, I love watching like when the, the first time home buyer couple years down the line becomes the investor client it's really cool i also really like this market as well i know some some brokers are crazy about all the conditions because extra paperwork but i'm like okay you don't have the high stress of having someone go firm where you don't have a commitment from that lender or any lender at that point because they haven't done any of the the prerequisite steps so you're basically 100 relying on your pre-approval and then the realtor and them finding a, a property, you don't know that that property might have some issue that insurer is not going to insure on it. All of a sudden you're in this bind. So there was like some stressful times trying to get those files funded. Thankfully never lost one and I'll knock on wood, but um, you know, right now it's, it's nice to have that five day financing window, show you a few different scenarios, show you how a few different lenders are going to treat you and, and you pick the best, best one for you and you as a homeowner are going to feel so much better with that peace of mind and and knowledge going forward yeah absolutely and and i feel like you're very similar to us is that you educate your your buyers and uh it just feels good to walk through a, a deal and know that your client has been given all the options available to them 
it's up to them to pick what they want you know and sometimes you probably are the same way well you think x answer is better for them but they choose y but it is what it is right for sure we get a lot right now with the everyone wants the five-year fix it's the lowest rate but you're taking a five-year fixed at a peak rate cycle i wouldn't recommend it but everyone everyone asks for it so yeah that's true that's a good point because i'm kind of in that mindset well maybe i should refinance it at you know five percent or whatever you know because we're on a we're on a variable right now and it's uh, 7.7 i think it is manual life yep. one product and it's it's really hard like it really is it's it's a lot more money than it was before um but I do know from an intellectual perspective that if they come down, then I'll be in a better position, you yep, know, yep. so rather than locking in. So just like you said, it just means we don't go to the keg, means we watch our budget a little bit more. You know, we shop at No Frills, you know, which is, by the way, we've been shopping at No Frills and Walmart. And there's no difference. My wife laughs at this because she used to go to Goodness Me all the time, which is a, you know, a nice place, but it's fairly expensive. She found these crackers at Walmart that are the pictures exactly the same as the ones at goodness me, just a slightly different box, same size box, everything. Yeah. But the difference is about $8 a box cheaper. Yeah. It's wild. You can believe that it's unbelievable. And then she starts looking at the ingredients and they're virtually the same, except that the Walmart one was a little bit healthier. Like what, <laughs> you know, all this, all this time, she's been, you know, spending eight, eight or nine dollars on this box of crackers or whatever. But, uh, anyways, I digress. I have one more question for you before we we leave, and I'm sure we'll jump back on a podcast in the future because there's lots more uh, things that we can educate our uh, common clients with. Um, I hear this a lot right now with people that have bought new builds. And now they're not able to close on those. So I want to know what happens with that. And then the secondary question with that, I did a a video, just a really short one that got a lot of attention, actually surprised by that, um, about the fires of new construction sites. So I'm wondering if you have any insight to that from the perspective of mortgage, like what happens? Okay, so on the new build side, there was actually... So basically what happens with the new build is you're going off the perspective value of once it's completed at times people could no longer qualify for that mortgage. So then their lender that they had lined up says, we're no longer giving you financing. And this does happen to people. So what we did in those scenarios is people who had new builds and ran into this wall, we have a lender partner that will use the equity that's been built. So say you bought and at the time of building, I don't know, it was 500,000, you contributed the product. Appreciation over the two years or whatever it took to build, it's now 650, 700. They'll use that as your minimum down payment. You can contribute a little bit more should you wish to. Just have to get it up to 20%. And then they will give you an open mortgage so you can secure the property, get everything set up that way. So you're not losing your deposit. You're not losing the home. You're not walking away and risking being sued. It costs money. It's it's not a cheap option uh, from a rate perspective, but it at least secures the asset for you and protects you from a liability standpoint. And then you can choose to figure out if rates come down in six months, you know, you might then qualify for that mortgage or you have that window to go. Hopefully the market picks up a bit 
for that home and you can sell it. So it gives it an exit strategy that way. The fires are people who are desperate. Uh, I, I have, they don't know about these options. No one's telling them about them. Um, they're in this position where they've, they've risked everything on appreciation, trying to, to get rich quick. And now they're in a, a bind and just like they look for the quick way to success, they're looking for the quick way out of a crappy scenario. So they set fire to the property. The only thing this is going to do is going to increase the costs of home insurance for other buyers. So it's really quite a selfish move and it's an uninformed move because there are strategies like the one I just said that could protect you in that scenario. Yeah, I was following the stories in, in Burlington in particular, uh, where it was construction sites. Uh, it looked like the buildings were mostly complete, maybe maybe just past framing or the exterior was done. And four or five of them go up in smoke. And the first thing that I think of and probably everyone thinks of is fire insurance fraud or something. Yep. Um, but from a perspective of, of the mortgage on that, it probably doesn't, does it impact them at all? Because it is um, not a finished product yet? So there, there's going to be, the mortgage comes on once the home is 97% complete. So there's an appraisal that goes through, there's an occupancy permit. So the lender themselves would not have any mortgage on the home. Right. So at that point, it's an insurance claim for that person. Now that said, if I don't know if lenders down the, the line are going to start looking to see, hey, have you, did you have a, a house that caught fire? Uh, because it's it's kind of an indication of fraud uh, and and so they, you never know, they might look for this kind of stuff down the line. Like there was one uh, just outside of Toronto there, I think it was in Mississauga where they had like the five guys with Jerry cans, black masks on. It's like, come on, <laughs> this is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Just, so. Here's uh here's 500 bucks each. Just go start yeah. this fire. Yeah. yeah. It just blows my mind. Like, I don't know. The fire department, the, police or whatever i don't think they're dumb i think no. they know what's going on but i'd love to know what happens like can we just please have a report someone out there can you like report on this and let us know what happened you know let us know yeah. what happened with the insurance let us know you know and and please may it not be successful if it is fraud may they get caught and broadcast that so everyone knows that it's not the way to go right because like you said it does affect us mm -hmm. and as it's too bad that they, you know, and you made a good point, actually. I never thought of it this way, but you made you made a statement that was like they wanted a quick buck. And just like they wanted the quick buck, they wanted the quick exit too. That's actually very true, I think, of the of general people's character that would do something like that. For sure. And, uh, yeah. I know there's a lot of people that came through my streams that wanted to do what's called assignments. And yeah. I asked them, well, why do you want to do an assignment? And I don't deal with assignments. So I, you know, I just listen to them and, you know, um, help them as best that I could with other things. And said, if you want to do an assignment, you got to do that on your own. But the reasons why is, oh, I don't have the down payment yet. Mm -hmm. So in three years, I will have enough saved up. Plus the property is going to appreciate. And I'm not even going to close on it. I'm just going to make the $100,000 because I saw it yeah. on YouTube. Right. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God, now, and I'm thinking of a, a couple of people and I'm just wondering, well, what happened to them? They must so be, I, you know, cause their properties would be, do now. Yeah. They're like, 
So bottom line though, you might be able to help them or no, they need a down payment still. Uh, No. So if there's appreciation in the home, we can use the appraised value. So if it has appreciated quite often, what happened is appreciated, but they don't have the down payment or they don't have enough of an income to carry these speculative properties. And a lot of people didn't just do one. Uh, We had one person who came in with like four of them and he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to try to sell some of them. Uh, I had another person come in on paper income, $15,000. She had a condo that was just shy of a million in Burlington. And I'm like, you don't qualify for this. Even if we use your parents, like, what were you thinking at the time? She's like, well, I thought I would just flip it, make the money kind of rinse and repeat. Well, now you have to pay the 13% HST on that. You have to find a buyer, which there's a shortage of that can qualify for that type of property. So in that instance, you use the appreciation that has occurred from the time that you committed to the project. We put you with a private lender. It gives you the six month to a one year interest only payment and you try to figure out your way from there. So either you, you increase your income save that down payment, find a family member who's willing to help co-sign or you then sell the unit. Yeah, that makes sense if it's appreciated, but I'm yeah. seeing a lot that have not appreciated. Yeah. You know, especially so, in Toronto where they built, you know, bought a condo for, you know, a million dollars and, it, you know, that one bedroom condo is only worth 700 now. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of those scenarios, you're, you're kind of, you come up with the difference. <laughs> You know that two fifty, uh, you have to have a down payment, and then you're you're essentially looking at private financing at that point. And private financing is not all terrible. The, a lot of our private lenders do step in and, and help people out when they're in binds, and they're a great tool that way. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not something you want to rely on long term, though. You don't want to be in a private mortgage, and nor does a private mortgage want to have you in there for any longer than a, a one year time frame. Right. It's it's a band aid. It's it's not. Uh, it's not like a healing surgery for you. So you always need an exit strategy with it. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, it's been really great talking with you. A lot of information we kind of weaved and bobbed through our, a lot of different topics. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how how this turns out on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll break it apart and stuff like that because there's there, it's pretty long. Um, I'd love to invite you back, you know, and talk about some more things. Uh, but is there anything that you want to say to uh, buyers out there or people out there in general as a as sort of a closing statement? Yeah, for sure. So if you, I'd love to come back first off, but uh, if you would like more in- information, we have a podcast, The Invested Entrepreneur, you can check out. Uh, if you're in the market for a home and, and need to get pre-approved, please reach out. Additionally, if you have an approval and your bank hasn't reached out to you to tell you that rates are dropped, reach out as well because you're likely leaving money on the table. Awesome. Thanks again, Brandon. Uh, We'll be in touch and um, have yourself a fantastic 2024 and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.